Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for just the words we were able to just sing. Lord, might all of our life, Lord, be for you and your name and your glory. That your fame, that your renown, that your that you would be exalted by our lives and collectively as a church, as a family, that we would exalt you together. And so, Lord, now as we open your word, would you speak to us? Would you reveal more of who you are, more of the reality of our world to us that we might live fully for you? Lord, use me. Now, as you see fit, we love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Mark 12, 13, or somewhere, Mark 12, 35 through 44. Um, Mark 12, 35 through 44. It'll be on the screens. There's a Bible in the seat ahead of you underneath it if you um, would like to follow from there. So I don't know if you remember this, but back um, when I was growing up, and I think they're still there today. I don't watch commercials anymore. And so, uh, but there was these public service announcements that would come out, and NBC did it like this, the more you know. Remember this? And do this, dun, 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 like that. There was like a little bell thing that it did it. And it, they, were, they were at the end of other things too. But I don't know, did anybody watch G.I. Joe? Anyway, anybody watch G.I. Joe? So I watched a lot of G.I. Joe, DuckTales and whatnot. And uh, growing up... <clears throat> Looney Tunes, all that stuff. You know, it's very peculiar how disturbing some of the cartoons I watched as a kid. They were very violent. Like, my kids are petrified at some of the things. I'm like, oh, watch this. And it's like, oh, man, like, everybody just died in a cartoon. This is crazy. So, um, so at the end of G.I. Joe, they would do this public service announcement, and it would be this kind of random like thing for kids. And so there would be like an electrical wire across the road and Johnny and Billy are riding their bikes up on it and all of a sudden like pops out one of, you know, G.I. Joe's and they would be like, don't ever touch an electrical wire going across the road. And then he'd like, and let a, let a trained professional do it. But I'm pretty sure he wasn't a trained professional. Like how did G.I. Joe know how to do everything really, right? So he'd take the wire and get it off the road. And there's these kind of announcements sort of, the more you know, like late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s, it was like the drug war. And so they were all like, don't do crack, right? Like, and, the, and, and the public service announcements were typically these things. I looked at some of them. I actually got kind of caught on YouTube for a while watching them this week. And they were, they were kind of funny because... They were like these obvious things. Like, I'm just going to take a poll. Do you, does everyone in this room know that you shouldn't smoke crack? Like, right? <laughs> like, that's like this common thing. And I know our society, and I, these are good announcements, but there were, these, there were these kind of obvious dangers, don't do them. And obviously, there was an epidemic going around that we, we'd have to do this. And so there was, you know, there was like, don't hit your kids, don't do this. And so these are real things that somewhere we kind of think everybody should know, but they don't. Right? That's kind of how those public service announcements went. And so, and, and the kind of idea was that like, boom, truth bomb, deal with it. Right? That's how they, they worked. I, I think in the text today, this is what we have to deal with. So Jesus, at the, and, and Mark 12, 34, um, right before this 35 section, what, he's, what it's going to say is that they dared not ask him any more questions. And so what had happened, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they'd been asking him these questions, and we'd kind of titled the sermon as final questions. But at this point, Jesus had dropped truth, and he'd said things in a way that they're like, uh, 
we're going to shut up because he keeps blowing us up. And so they, this kind of comes. Now, the truth bomb, he's been dropping them. But what's going to happen is they stopped asking questions and Jesus stopped responding to them. And then he began to, now the text today, he's going to speak into them. So now he is going to speak into where they are, who they are, what they are, their misconceptions. And so this isn't directed by them. Now it's directed by Jesus. And so in some ways, this is this kind of grand moment at the end, we're Wednesday here, right? Jesus is going to die on Friday. And Jesus is, this is his last teaching that Mark records in the temple courts. And it's pretty important. And so it's going to go like this. They're going to have a question about him being from the line of David. And then, and he's going to, they're not going to ask the question. Jesus is going to kind of address this thing, this kind of dilemma they have of who, where is he really from? Who is Jesus? And then it's going to deal with this other kind of thing he's going to speak into is they have this kind of outward spirituality and outward religiousness that he is going to um, blow up. And then he's going to tell a story about a widow who gave everything she had, which equaled about a penny, and tell how wonderful her great gift was. And so let's read the text. Mark 12, 35 through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that, that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. 41, and he sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So in the passage, there's kind of two main things that we see. We'll see it in 35 through 40 and then 41 through 44. And so the first is he gives this warning. And the warning is this, beware of missing the kingdom. So if you're following with me in the notes, beware of missing the kingdom. And so in 35 through 37, they, they're missing who Jesus is. They're missing the reality of who Jesus is. I remember a young lady came to my office a few years ago and she said, she was kind of doubting and questioning the whole Christianity thing. And uh, I have these great meetings where parents want me to meet with their child to fix them, right? And uh, this is my statement. I didn't make them, I didn't break them, and I can't fix them, right? That's like my little thing. So if you just take that with you, right? That's, but as a pastor, that's, I do that. And so we sat, and her parents were really concerned about where she was. And so we began to have this dialogue about who Jesus is and what he's done and her questions, and when she began to talk about Jesus, all that she talked about was the people in the church that she'd observed, how they'd behaved, and how they'd live. And, and the basic of it was this, is 
it's, it's a bunch of hypocrisy. And I don't know if I want it. Right? And so, I don't know. Have you, have you guys ever heard that about Christianity? Maybe that's just the first time I've ever heard it. It was so shocking. No. I mean, that's common, right? This is a common thing. And so, I began to ask her questions about who Jesus really is. And if she's ever considered who Jesus is, not from the experience of what she has seen, but from the truth of God's word and the reality of what he has said and what he has done and who he is. And I challenged her. I said, maybe we could begin a journey of walking down a road of exploring who Jesus is and what you might do in response to who Jesus is. So simple way of saying it. Let's not look to the left and the right to our neighbor, but let's look up and see who he really is. See, there's this thing, this, the, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees and Sadducees, what they were missing is they were missing who Jesus really was. And so it says... And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So what he's saying here is this, there was this kind of, there was this teaching going around that Jesus, that the Messiah was going to come. And the Messiah who came was going to literally be like a direct son of David, kind of reincarnate. And he was going to come and reign and rule. And so literally a direct, not like in the line of descendants, but a direct son of of David. They were, they were misinterpreting the scriptures. And so in this kind of misinterpretation, they were kind of developing this whole kind of theology around that. And what that theology looked like was, is that the Messiah was going to come and restore a Davidic kingdom. And that Davidic kingdom would be a time of peace and of rule and reign, where the kingdom would be kind of restored as it was in its glory, kind of with the King David, um, with, with King David, and he was going to do it in, in, in an even greater way. So this was a misconception that they were believing theologically. So how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So then Jesus is going to refute it, and he's going to refute it like this. David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, Psalm 110, so what Jesus is saying, this is truth. So he's going to, just by the way, if, if you discount the Old Testament, Jesus treated it as truth, and so should we. And so David himself calls him Lord. So, so he's going to quote Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so how can he, like, so the question is, how can he call his son Lord? And so what he's saying is that Jesus, the Messiah, he's not like David. He's not a seed of man. He's the seed of God. He's different. He's unique. He's one of a kind. He's in the lineage of David, but he is higher than David. David will worship him. David will sit under his feet. David, the, the, the Lord will put him at his right hand, and he will put his enemies under his feet. David will himself bow down to Jesus, the Messiah's Lord. So David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? The great throng heard him gladly. And we'll see this is even important in Acts 2 when Peter preaches kind of the first great sermon after Jesus ascends to heaven. He'll speak of this and he'll speak of David and he'll speak of that, that, that there is a Messiah who will come in the name, uh, the, in the lineage of David. Um, Peter will say this in Acts 2, 34 through 36. And he says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ so what was happening in their culture and in their time is they were allowing this kind of theological mistreatment, this idea of who the Messiah would be and what he would do to drive their opinions and their feelings and kind of, of everything they saw. And so Jesus is going to speak into this. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes we do as they do. We let kind of our cultural understandings define to us 
who Jesus is and how he acts and how he behaves. So example would be this. So simple thing is we live in a culture that is, is full of consumerism. Consumerism is kind of the, some say even the religion of America. So consumerism works like this, is I chase after what I like and what I want in hopes that what I consume will bring me greater life, greater joy, greater peace, greater, are you with me? Right, that's what consumerism says. So consumerism comes in the church like this. We say things like, and we'll talk about the pulpit or the music stand, since we don't have a pulpit. Um, so it works like this with preaching. Um, <clears throat> and this has been kind of historically in Christianity, something that's, that writers have written about. So <clears throat> when I preach today, some of you will go away, and I'm okay with this, it's fine, because I've heard bad preachers too. Some of you will walk away, and you'll be like, that was a good sermon. I really liked it, right? Or some of you will be like, that was a really bad sermon. I didn't like it very much. Now, I'm with you. Like, there's just some bad preachers out there, and I just hope I'm not one of them, right? But there are. Like, I've heard some guys, and it's not, not super great because of content. But, but what we do is we move consumerism into the church and we say, I'm going to come to a place and I am going to be defined by what I like or what I dislike. And if I like it, I'm going to continue in it. If I dislike it, I'm not going to continue in it. So consumerism comes in like that. And so what happens is the word of God and the pulpit, the preaching of God's word, what happens in that is it ceases to be authoritative it ceases to be truth that I have to deal with in my life, and it becomes about what I like or what I dislike rather than about dealing with truth and applying truth in my heart. Now, I would say this. A bad sermon is one that doesn't deal with truth. A bad sermon is one that doesn't challenge me. Now, I don't know about you, but in reading my Bible, there's some really challenging things that I don't like very much. I, I don't like texts that say things like, let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus is in this moment with these men and he, the guy's like, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to serve you, but I got to go bury my dad. And he said, no, let the dead bury their own dead. Get busy after my kingdom work. Jesus will say things like this, that, that the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, yet the son of man has no place to lay his head. This completely giving of himself. I mean, I don't know if you've read your Bible much, but these things challenge me. And I, I ask myself questions, am I living sacrificially like that? And, and like, can I? And what does that look like? And how does that work? I mean, has anybody ever asked that question to yourself? And so the word of God isn't this, I said it a few weeks ago, isn't this happy, 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 I like it, I like it, I like it thing. It's this, man, God is authoritative and true and he is wonderful. And how do I come underneath his truth and live this out in my life? We see it in all kinds of other ways where consumerism creeps in and we allow, like, we allow these cultural things to drive us in our theology. And that's what they were doing in this is they were allowing these cultural things to drive us in how they saw Jesus. And the danger is, is that they would miss who Jesus really was. And what happens to many of these men is they missed it. And might we not miss who Jesus really is? Because see, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He reigns and rules. It says that every knee will bow and every will, tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is a reality. This isn't a thought or opinion or a like or a dislike. Jesus is king. He is the only person that has ever lived that will be a reigning and ruling eternal king. 
He was a spotless son of God who died a sacrificial death on the cross. He defeated death, hell, in the grave, rose to on high, and is seated, and he is king. But yet there's this other peculiar side of Jesus, that he is servant, which we don't even think about this thing, because what kind of like high-leveled person gets down in the mess of humanity? The one who met me in my greatest time of trial and struggle continues to meet me in my times of struggle and comes and he washes and he cleanses and he renews. We see him even kneeling down before his death and washing disciples' feet. Jesus is not just king, but he's a servant, which is kind of mind-blowing. It's like, how do I even grasp how vast this Jesus is, who is the highest, most righteous, most holy one ever, yet will humble himself so low to wash feet, to come in my mess, come in my trial, come in my struggle, and meet me there and minister to me in it. And yet he is also Lord. He is Lord, not just king, not just servant, but he is Lord. He is the one who rules and reigns and ought to be submitted to and allow him to lead us and guide us in all that we do. But not as... And so in this, what we see is that Jesus is unique, holy, righteous, glorious, wonderful, and mighty. And what the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees missed is they were standing in front of that man, king, servant, and Lord. And they saw him simply as a son of David that was going to maybe do something good for them to create their present little blip on earth to make it a little bit better when he had something so much more vast and something so much more glorious for them than that. And they missed it. And I hope for us that we don't miss who Jesus is. The second thing that we see is they missed is they missed what Jesus requires. 38 through 40, they miss what Jesus requires. And in his teaching, he said, verse 38, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. The best way that I could think of this is I was reading it and studying it. It took me to Thailand. Um, I've been to Thailand multiple times, and in Thailand, there's these men that walk around, monks, and they walk around in these orange, this orange garb. You've seen it, I, I would guess, right? This, I, I could be a monk pretty quick. The hair, haircut thing's pretty much done. Get rid of this. I'd be pretty good. Just put the orange on. And, and the misconception of monks is that <clears throat> monks don't have to... You can be a monk for two days. You can be 18 and be a monk for two days. You can be a monk your whole life. It's kind of this path to enlightenment, the more you do it, the more enlightened you'll be, and maybe when you're reincarnated, you'll kind of move up the wheel and things will be better for your life. That's the idea of it. But we read this text, this is, this is what happens. So they walk around in these orange robes, and they walk down the street. Now, if you go out early in Thailand in the morning, what you'll see is they walk, they're, they're all over the place. It's like, it's like an orange parade, everywhere, walking around, and everybody's cooking breakfast. And what happens is these monks go in, who have taken this kind of life of poverty and life of little, and they get these huge heaping plates of food, right? And they have bags, and they're putting fruit in their bags. And everyone in Thailand takes care of these monks because if they do, then somehow when they come back in life, like, they'll be better. And, and the scribes are a little bit like this. When they walk through the marketplace, everyone would stop what they're doing and stand to attention because these men in these white, long robes would walk through. And as these men with white, long robes would walk through, they would, they would look at them and they would 
They, they, would, they would greet them and they would say, oh, come sit at the best seat in the synagogue. Come to my party. And if you had scribes at your party, that means that you were elite and you were an aristocrat, that you, you were something. And so they would invite them and give them the best seats. And all of this was kind of to earn religious favor with God. And, and so they loved this and they loved the praise and they loved the position and they, they were honored at feast. And what he says, so what they did is, in reality, they devoured widows' houses what looked good, they were taking from others who desperately needed it. And they weren't gaining anyone anything, but only gaining themselves. And even their prayers, right, for pretense, they made long prayers at church I served at, and pastor, a lady walked up to me, and she goes, Pastor Ryan, I love it when you pray. She goes, because it's, it's, like, it's, it's actually like you really mean it. And I was like, dang, what does that say about all those other guys? Like, that's not a, an encouragement. That's like an indictment, right? Like, and, but, but this was this kind of like pretenses. They were, they were just doing prayers to pray. They weren't praying to God. They were, they, were, they were offering religious services, but it wasn't a service to the Father. And then Jesus makes this really strong statement. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, the hearers... This would have been like shocking to them because they were exalted. They received praise. They were honored. They had the highest places. And Jesus says, you will be condemned for your actions. Now, I don't know about you, but again, this is like those words you don't want to hear from Jesus. Like you're going to receive greater condemnation. Now, just a side note in this, it, it kind of resembles this James text. And there's a text in James that says that that those who teach God's word will, will, will come under more strict, greater judgment. And I will say that, that there is, I feel it in my life, there's this thing that I knew when I went into ministry that I would stand up and preach and teach God's word. And then if I did it wrong, that there will be something more harsh coming my way in the day of judgment. Jesus says, you know, do not, do not lead the little ones astray. Right, take care of them. There's this thing, the sacred thing of handling the truth of God's word and his ways. And so I had this dilemma, right? I answer the call of God upon my life or I reject it because I'm afraid of greater judgment. Just so you know, I came to this resolve. Both sides were dangerous. I could disobey God and come under judgment or I could obey God and come under harsher judgment. So I kind of resolved, I'm just gonna teach what he said, and I'm going to do my very best to teach truth as truth. And I'm going to attempt to go that. And so just to the person in this room that maybe you have, you have like, you've not taught because you're a bit afraid of, of maybe texts like this, I'm just going to kind of challenge you that there's, there's a double fear here. And the double fear is what if you disobey God? You'll have to answer for that too. And if you obey him, you're going to answer for that too. So how about we just honor him and do what he says and do it the very best we can, as authentic as we can with, this, with his truth. So in this, what, what, where, we, where, we, where we kind of come to issue in this, and so the point is we are not defined. So the big point of this kind of 38 through 40 is we are not defined by our practice but are defined by the content of our hearts, our affections, and our desires. And that's really clear in this text. They're devouring the widow, right? And then we're going to see the widow give a little bit. And 
the, the text is going to kind of say, what's more honorable? These, these kind of long-robed, rich, kind of preying upon others, devouring widows, and the widow who is giving a little. And he's going to say, what's more honorable is the heart of the one that loves God genuinely. And see, the, what this exposes about these men is, in a lot of ways, what is true for the religious for, for all time and eternity. What happens with the religious is this, is maybe two, two ways predominantly. One is self-righteous imposition. And so we impose upon others like our self-righteousness. So how that looks is what I excel in, I'm going to oppose on you because you don't quite achieve it. So it looks like this. So X person in the room, you go to come to church every week, right? You come to church, you got... You're like, man, I come to church every week. I got notes in my Bible. Like, I do it all. I got this. Like, I know the greeters at every door. I'm here on time and I'm on early. Like, I do it. I got this. But Bill, he doesn't. He only comes once a week. Come on, man. Bill, get it together. You should be at church every Sunday. What's wrong with you? Right? That which I excel in, I impose on others. So that might be very simple, right? Other ways that I once did this in my life is I was a foster parent. I obeyed the command that true religion is this to take care of orphans and widows. And I came to a place in my heart where it was a truly wonderful thing that we were engaged in. We really felt like we were in the will of God, but where self-righteousness began to peek in as I began to look out and I said, there's millions of orphans in the world. And what's wrong with all these sorry suckers that won't do it? You're not really Christian. You just do your Christianity thing. You show up and you leave. My Christianity thing's day in, day out with an orphan in my arms. And what I began to do is began to get puffed up in my obedience, and I began to impose it upon others. And so something really good, I think, is honorable to take care of, you know, children that are not your own, the fatherless. The Bible speaks of that. But see, my righteousness is not found in what I do. My righteousness is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And I was motivated by Jesus to live in a righteous way and to obey him because he died for me to care for others in my home. But after a while, that became a little bit twisted in my life and I began to make it an imposing self-righteousness thing on others. And just so you know, God took me through a good season of repentance to deal with the sin that entangled me. Now, I doubt any of you have ever dealt with self-righteousness in this room. Um, I don't, I doubt you've ever thought you were better than anyone else. Um, <clears throat> we do these things and that's what the Pharisees really were doing. It was, it was self-righteous, imposing their self-righteousness on others, taking that which we excel in and pushing it upon others. The only reason I will ever excel in God is because Jesus Christ died for me on the cross. My righteousness is found in him and him alone. And that kind of brings us to the second kind of way we do this is we we put the practice of our faith over the object of our faith. And what they were doing is their practice became the predominant thing. You had to wear this. You had to look like this. You had to do this. And if you did these things, your practice would make you right with God. And the flip side of that is true. The object of my faith, again, the object of my faith 
Jesus Christ makes me righteous before God. He is the one who paid the penalty for my sin. He is the one who died on the cross. He is the one who I repented to and who I placed my faith in. And through him, like the great, like, like Noah, Jesus referred to this, said, as, as, as Noah and his family was in the ark, they were saved. We, as it, who are in Jesus, will be saved. It is only by Jesus that our salvation comes. And because the object of our faith has done this for us, now we, in response... Right? In response, we gather together as a family and hear and, and worship and sing. Because of what Jesus has done, we gather in communities and study God's word. Because of what Jesus has done, we travel to other nations and proclaim Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done, we go into North Canton and Canton and Jackson and all the different places in our region to, to share and proclaim Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done, our practice does not save us. The object of our faith saves us, and that object then moves us to our practice. And so kind of the two ways the religious always in time in history get it wrong is through self-righteous imposing and practice of faith over the object of our faith. See, I, I believe what Jesus is calling them to here is to understand who he is and what he has done to not miss it. Understand what he requires. And what he requires is for us to, to give up all of our lives to him as Lord and King and bow down before him to never get over our redemption and never move back to works. So beware of missing the kingdom. And then verse 41 through 44, and we'll be finished. It says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering. So here, what, so, so what's happening here is this is, my dad used to do this when we were growing up. So we would go to the mall and my dad would sit down at a bench in the mall and he would watch people, right? And then on the way home, he would tell us all these crazy stories of things he saw people do. Sometimes my dad would pretend like he was asleep so he could hear people say, hey, look at that guy. He's asleep with his mouth open and they would talk about him. My dad did these kind of things. Um, I don't know if you, anybody ever people watch, like you just kind of watch people and it's kind of fun. And so I know for me, one, one summer um, when I was in college, I went on a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ. And I went to Alaska, and I, it was like a discipleship um, <clears throat> opportunity. We, we did evangelism in Anchorage, and then we also got jobs. So I worked at Polar Bear Gifts from 8 to 4, and uh, I was the polar bear on Thursdays, if you've ever heard me tell the story. And uh, so I worked at Polar Bear Gifts, and <clears throat> at lunch, we had a half-hour lunch break, and so I would, I, would, I would go out, and there was all these vendors outside down the streets of Anchorage for all the tourists, and I would get a reindeer dog, um, which was 20% reindeer, and pork, beef, and chicken, and uh, it was delicious, and a uh, thing they did in Anchorage, and so, and I would go to a park, and I would sit. Now, there was a ton of homeless people in, in downtown Anchorage, which was kind of peculiar, because if I was going to choose to be homeless, that would be, like, the last place in the world to be homeless. It gets a little cold in Anchorage, and so, so we watched all the homeless people walk around all summer, and I would go sit in a park, and I'd kind of watch the dynamics of the tourists and the homeless and all these things, and that was kind of lunchtime for me. And about two weeks in, I was watching this kind of, this, this homeless couple, they were sat down, and all of a sudden I saw an argument ensue, and then I saw, her, saw him stand up and slap her across the face. It's this moment of like, oh my goodness. Like, I need to do something. There's <laughs> this moment of like, am I, am, do I have enough courage to like stand up? 
So I, I stood up and I'm going to walk over because I, I, somebody has to do something and then somebody else comes and somebody else comes and then everybody scatters and I couldn't do anything. And as I lived that summer, I got to know that lady and I got to know different people there and I began to see like just watching homeless people, there was this other thing happening. There wasn't just like people didn't have money so they lived on the street. There was all kinds of social issues, underwriting homelessness and mental illness and all these things that made up this world. And so kind of through people watching, I got to see something that I never really wanted to see, and I got to see something deeper. And I think what Jesus is doing here, he's kind of sitting behind like a little pot, right? This is kind of the image of it. He's just sitting there, and he's watching people give their offerings. And obviously, there's people around him, and he begins to speak to this. And he begins to speak to the reality of what is happening. And and I think this is the point of this text, is that that he's calling us to believe in the reality of the kingdom. So if you're in point two, believe in the reality of the kingdom. It says, many rich people put in large sums. And many of them would have walked by, I'm sure, in superiority, dressed well, on public display of all the money and the resources they were putting in. It says, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins and what he shows as he's watching this is this kind, of, this kind of contradictory thing that he sees. These well-dressed, well-positioned people putting in large sums of money. And this poor widow, impoverished, she walks in front and she puts in two small copper coins, which make a penny, which was about, maybe even for her, like, well, it was everything she had. And he called his disciples to him. And I just imagine that she went home to, like, to her, to her son or daughter who was there. And they're like, Mom, what'd you do? You gave up all your money. Right? That's what we do. Sometimes we, we get after each other for not stewarding well. And she was just doing the best she could to honor God in her heart. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. There's kind of two things that we see under this, to to believe in the reality of the kingdom. When we believe that that the kingdom of God is a reality, that it's not kind of this hopeful, distant thing, but there's this reality of the reign of God and the rule of God, that Jesus truly is seated at the right hand, that I'm ever living before him, that he is a very real presence in this world. What this woman did, I believe, and the reason Jesus honored her is because she desired to honor Christ in her attitude. She, out of her poverty, she didn't sit there as poor me, poor me, poor me. But what she did is that she, she, her love of God led her to give all she had. Her love of God preceded her pity of herself. It was the highest priority of her life. And she desired to honor Christ in her actions. Hannah says, and it's quoted in 1 Samuel 2.3, the Lord is weighing our actions. He's seeing what we do ever before him. And she did this before him, not because the Lord was watching, because it was truly her heart. See, this thing with money, Jesus will say it, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what she did was she put her treasure, right, in the Lord. And many of the rich that were walking by, now, don't hear this as another condemnation against the rich. I don't think that's the point of this text. I think you can have wealth, and be generous, and be in right standing with God. 
if you understand that it is through Jesus and you give abundantly out of that, right? I don't think that's what this is saying. But what it is saying is Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Her treasure, her treasure was in God. And her treasure in God caused her to give of herself. Now, what that looks like, and I'll just share with you personally, not, 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 I'm not going to give you numbers because I think that would lead into sin, right? So, but for me personally in giving, this is what it looks like for me. And you may have heard me say this. Giving is always this weird thing. Me and, me and my wife um, shared, shared the gospel with her grandfather right before he passed away. And he, he, he outright rejected Jesus in that conversation. But one of the reasons he did is he said, there's a pastor that sat in my living room like this when my kids were young and they came to church on Sundays. And he said, your kids have been coming here a lot. When are you going to start giving money? And so I don't ever want anyone to hear me talk about money in a way that's like you got to pay to play. That's not, that's not how the church works. See, when the Bible speaks of money, it speaks about our heart. It, money is this thing that entraps us because we can easily love money more than we love God. Money is slippery and it is sneaky. And so for me, I know that in my life. And so my wife and I, we choose to tithe. We choose to tithe simply because we know that 100% of our money is God and the 10% is just simply saying, God, we know. We know that our cash is yours and we are submitting to you in this way. We also do it because we love the ministry and the work of the local church. We believe in it and we want to give to it. Some of you are like, don't you get paid by the ministry and local church? Yeah, and we're giving back to it too. And we give back to it because we believe in it. We believe in the mission of it. And then even beyond that, giving sacrificially in our abundance giving to the, the work and the ministry of, of other things and of the local church because we believe in this kingdom reality of God's work and his kingdom. So for us as a church, for each of us individually, I, I hope what this text does is it, it causes us to look inward in our life and ask questions like, am I desiring Christ in my attitude? Am I, am, am I, am I, am I desiring to honor him in my attitudes? That, that, that I love him most, that my affections are... are are for him above my, my money and my things. But also, I, I want to desire to honor him in my actions. See, I think we, we do this thing where we're like, yeah, in my head, I love him, right? And if, I think if it, if it stays in our head, I don't think it actually is true. It's like me saying, I love Debbie, and then I treat her like garbage. You would say, wait a second, I don't think you love her. You treat her like garbage, right? You would say that to me. I think many times when our head, we're like, yeah, I love God. And he's like, well, how do you display that? And our treasure is one of the things that Jesus speaks of over and over, displays our love. Now, we don't earn favor. We don't earn grace. We don't earn anything through our giving, but it is a display. And so in this, I desire to honor him in my actions by, by actually giving of my, my resources, 